All right, great. Well, what an immense privilege to be up here before you again this morning. And for the occasion of beginning, as Al mentioned, our new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Church, I'm excited. And uh, I know many of you were here, were, la- were here last year, but for those who weren't, we spent nine months last year in what we called our GROW course. It was a course we offered on Wednesday evenings. And we spent nine months doing an inductive Bible study in the book of Ephesians. Well, now this year, we're going to have the opportunity to preach through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to preach what we've been studying. A couple of resources for you before we begin, actually, just to alert you to. This week in the Paul and Vista Forum, we want to get to you some of the coursework of our GROW course, some of the charts and outlines we use that you can be able to study and follow along with us during the duration of these next six months. Also, we want to recommend a commentary for you, a worthy investment for you to study along. And what we're going to offer in the resource table for sale is The Message of Ephesians by John Stott. This is really a, well, this book is written by one of my former pastors, actually, when I was going to school in England, John Stott. He has now passed away to be with the Lord this past year, but he was an eminent theologian pastor, and educator. And we think this commentary is accessible, it's readable, it's John Stott, it's pastoral, and it'll help you as well as we study this book together the next six months. So you can find that in our resource center today, I believe for $10. Great. Well, let's begin. Our sermon this morning, more than a greeting from Ephesians. Well, writer Eugene Peterson tells the story of his grandson, his grandson hopping into his lap one day and saying these words, Grandpa, tell me a troll story. A story with trolls. That was pretty cool. For the last several months, we as a family have been watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the extended HD version. And as J.R. Tolkien, the author, knows well, any good story has to have at least one cave troll. Or maybe two. Well, apparently, the grandson agreed. So he hopped back into his grandfather's lap and said, Grandpa, tell me a story with trolls. And then he added these words. And put me in it. And put me in the story, Grandpa. I love it. This morning, the Apostle Paul, the author of this wonderful book of Ephesians, is putting you in the story. He's putting me in the story. God's ultimate story. And he's putting the Gentiles in, and he's putting you and me into this cosmic story for his glory. And this story, it's true. This story began long before you breathed your first breath. And this story will continue long after your last breath expires here on earth. It's a story, and it's his story. There are no cave trolls, sorry. There's something much more heinous and real in this story. And it's Satan. To use the Lord of the Rings speech, it's Sauron himself and his cohorts. We read in Ephesians 6, verse 12, there are rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, we've been put into this story, a story that encompasses heaven and earth. It's a cosmic story. It's God's story. It's a story of the Trinity as well, as we'll see in Ephesians. It's a story of God the Father and His master plan. It's a story of God the Son who executes the will and plan of the Father. It's a story of the Holy Spirit who delivers this story to our hearts and makes it effectual. It's a Trinitarian story of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a story, it's a plan that cannot be thwarted even by Satan himself. So if you're here this morning and you think that all there is to life is what you see, 
All there is to life is what I feel at the moment. All there is to life is my brief life here on earth. Can I say this? you got another thing coming. And it's coming to you by way of Ephesians. God's story is so much bigger than my puny little world. Or your little world as well. So here's my prayer. It's prayer for this sermon, but it's my prayer for this entire sermon series. That you would find yourself in God's story. That you would define yourself by God's story. Or in other words, you would know your place in God's story of grace. And that is the theme of today's sermon as we launch into Ephesians. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I am reminded from your word, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands, endures forever. Lord, would you, this morning, open our eyes, enlighten our hearts to your great story. And Lord, may we find, know our place in that story, who you have called us to be in Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, know your place in God's story of grace. I'm going to start this morning with really the big idea of Ephesians, this idea of God's story and your place. So we're going to start with a panoramic view of Ephesians. This is the big picture. This is the big idea. And then we're going to drill down and take a portrait lens and see where we fit into this story. But we must start with the big story. If we're going to do justice to this book of Ephesians, we may be asking, what is God's story? God's story is His unfolding plan for all of creation. For all of it. His plan for every rogue nation. His plan for every cancerous cell. His plan for every demonic spirit. His plan for every wayward child. His plan for every sciatic nerve. His plan for every human being. His plan for you and me. And God's purposes, His plan can be summarized in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're not there, could you open your Bibles now to the first chapter of Ephesians 1. And what I want to do here is, I'm just going to dip into Ephesians 1, just briefly. Al's going to preach on the eulogy, this opening to Ephesians 1, the next couple of weeks. But I simply want to point out this theme that we see that's surfacing even in the first chapter in verse 10. You see, right here, we're going to see the backdrop, the backbone of Ephesians. It's going to help us understand the theme of the book as well as the very greetings, verses 1 and 2, that we're going to cover in this sermon as well. So what is God's plan? Oh, it's a plan. Paul often calls it a mystery, which he has revealed to his children. Now quoting in verse 10 of Ephesians 1. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Who's Him? Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So what is the big story? Christ has come to unite all things, all things under His rule. Things in heaven as well as things on earth. The wordage there used to unite could also be translated to sum up. God's plan is to sum up all things in Christ. How? Through Christ's death on the cross, through His resurrection, through His ascension to heaven, and through His exaltation, now in the heavenlies. You see, Jesus was never sent to be some tribal God. Just our little God here at Palm Vista, and for just a few of the scattered remnants throughout this globe. No, Christ's view and scope is universal. And so is his rule. We read in Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there. Just hear it, please. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 10. 
speaking of Christ, and being found in human form, he, that's Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Wow. Lord, may it be. But there's a tension, isn't there? I feel it in my soul when I read that. I want to be clear and honest. Christ's universal rule is not yet fully experienced. His kingdom has come, but it's not yet consummated. It's what theologians call the already and the not yet. See, D-Day has come. Doomsday has come to Satan. We know that, of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Yet V-Day, Victory Day, has not yet been fully experienced. There's a tension, isn't there? I feel it when I look, watch the news daily. We're bombarded with this tension. It's our lives. It's also what we see in the world around us. What's been in my mind lately is just the country of North Korea. As I've seen some of the footage, or at least what's happening there. Well, maybe some of you know that the ruler, Kim Jong-il, died after 17 years of rule. North Korea. Two million people have died due to hunger starvation under Kim Jong-il's rule as they developed nuclear weapons. And the prospects don't look much better. For now, his son and successor, Kim Jong-un, is now in power. Do you know, just to be a Christian in North Korea, just to be a Christian, to be known publicly, identified as a Christian, is to be sentenced to a life of hard labor in a consecration camp, i.e. a death camp. Where's Christ's role? We look at creation, just going through the year and the end review these magazines produce, and just reminded afresh of just the devastating tsunami that occurred a year ago in Japan, the tornado that ripped through Alabama and those states, the earthquakes in Turkey that shook Turkey. This whole world... Seems out of joint, doesn't it? But we don't have to look out there to realize that. We just look in our culture around us. Perhaps even in our own families as well. Families are dislocated. Creation is spoiled. And lives are ravaged by sin. But notice what Paul says in Ephesians 1.10. How this verse begins. It begins with a key phrase. As a plan for the fullness of time. For the fullness of time. That time spoken about is not yet fully here. Now it's coming. God's story is progressing. And His plan cannot be thwarted. And we're reminded of that in this wonderful book of Ephesians. But hear this. God wants His plan that He's executing through His Son to be broadcast and known. Not only to you, not only to us here in Miami Lakes, not only to us on this earth, but He wants it broadcast even to the heavenlies. Five times in this book, we see this curious phrase that Paul uses, in the heavenlies. Paul is concerned, God is concerned, that what he's doing is made known, that his universal rule is to be known and be testified to and shouted even to the heavenlies. So here's the question. How is God going to do that? How is God going to make known his plan for his cosmic rule over all creation? You ready? He's going to make it known through you, through his church. That's how he is making it known. If you have Ephesians open, just turn to Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Here we see God's unfolding plan. And yes, this marvelous story that he's accomplishing through his church. We read first in verse 10 of Ephesians 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to whom? 
to the rulers and authorities. Where? In the heavenly places. Do you catch that? Let's contextualize this truth. So God is making known His wisdom and power through, through the church. Yeah, through you and me. Yes, through Palm Vista as a local expression of His church. Palm Vista, Sovereign Grace Church in Miami. Every gospel-centered church. We're the manifold wisdom of God. I don't understand that, but that's what I'm reading. Made known to the rulers and authorities. And listen to this. Going on, it's verse 11, isn't it? This was according to the eternal purpose that He, that's God, has realized in Christ Jesus. Oh, just how we as individuals and how we as a church reveal this plan and wisdom is what we're going to unpack in the months to come. It's the story of Ephesians. It's the story of God's redeeming and reconciling work in Christ made effectual by His Holy Spirit. But this I do want you to know now, church. I want you to know that not only this story, I want you to know your place. Point two, in this story. Just as the grandson requested, Grandpa, put me in the story. You too have been put into the story. Each person in this room, you and I, will be brought before Christ's rule. Or to use the wording in verse 10, united or summed up in Christ. Here it is. Each one of us will either be summed up by grace, reconciled to Christ as his child, or will be summed up in Christ's righteous judgment. Either way, we'll be tested and summed up, either by grace and salvation or through judgment. It's one or the other. There's no neutrality here in God's plan. And make no mistake, God the Father is uniting all things under His rule in His Son. And He's starting with His church. All those who have been united with Christ. You see, we here at Palm Vista, we're the first fruits of what God is doing to the Son. He has united us to Him and united us to one another. We are the first fruits of what God is doing in all creation. We are exhibit A. If God would appear before a universal court of law, we would be exhibit A of His will and intent to conquer all creation in our very souls. We would be the exhibit that He would offer the church. We're what God's doing. I don't understand that. It is a mystery. Oh, but I want to. It's glorious and it's cosmic in its implications. So you just thought we're just a little church of Palm Vista, didn't you? Yeah, a little church meeting in Miami Lakes. Yeah, 15-year-old, little teenager meeting in a middle school. Appropriate, right? Oh, no. We're more than that. We're going cosmic. We're going cosmic. Not viral. That's old school. We're not going viral. We're going cosmic here at Palm Vista, okay? We're going cosmic. There are implications to how we live and what we do that testifies to the earth and testifies to the heavenly places that God, through His Son, is reigning and ruling. I hope you understand that. It's the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is not just a book of teaching. It's that. It's also a prayer. And we see Paul's very first prayer in the first chapter. We'll get to that in a few weeks. In verses 15 through 23. And Paul prays this. He says, I'm praying for you, Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Verse 18. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why is he praying this? He's praying this to the Ephesians. Thus, us today may find our place in God's story of grace. We may find our place not as a defeated foe of Christ, crushed under his feet, that's verse 22 of verse, chapter 1. No, as those who have been united with Christ, seated in the heavenly places and at His feet. Seated at His feet. Oh, church, may God's grace define you this morning, not His judgment. So what is your place, oh Christian? 
What's this place I'm referring to? The place is found in Christ. This place is found in His church. It's for everyone who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and placed their saving faith in Him who died for our sins to reconcile, to unite us to God. That's the story that Paul wants to define you in the Ephesians. And that leads to the very first two verses of Ephesians, known probably in your Bible there as the greeting. But I, I, I wanted to see the big picture first because what we're going to look at, oh, it, it's more than a greeting. It's more than just a formality. These truths that we just introduced are found here, even in the greeting of the letter itself. You see, Paul got this. He understood his God's story and his place in that story. And he wants you to understand it too from the very first verses and words of Ephesians. So now we're going to drop down from our 50,000 foot flight and we're going to land now in the greeting portion of Ephesians starting with verse 1. And we're going to make it personal starting with the Apostle Paul. Starting with verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice right off the bat that Paul identifies himself as the author of this letter. But I want you to look carefully how Paul refers to himself in this letter. He refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but we may be tempted just to kind of breeze over that introductory statement. In fact, Paul uses this designation in a number of his epistles, in a number of his letters. Well, what do we mean? What does he mean by saying he's an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, in the narrowest sense, and I believe the sense that Paul is using, he's saying, I have been called. I have been commissioned by Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I come to you and I speak as a messenger who is fully authorized by Christ himself. Well, is Paul just kind of flexing his muscles before the Ephesians? Kind of putting them in their place by pulling the apostleship card? I don't think so. He's talking to those who perhaps he hasn't seen in many years, most likely doesn't know it at all. So yes, he may be reminding the people who he is, or perhaps even introducing himself to the Ephesians. But I believe something else is going on here. It's this. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this letter? Paul was in prison. Paul is not writing from a place of strength, but weakness. He is facing the reality of death. Yet, he introduces himself as an apostle. What's Paul saying? This is what I believe he's saying. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm in chains. I'm a prisoner. It says in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6. But you know what? That doesn't define me. My chains don't define me. I'm an apostle. Apostle by the will of God. In other words, he's saying God's call and grace defines me. I love that phrase. An apostle, look at that, by the will of God. In other words, he's an apostle, not in his own doing. He's not saying, yeah, this is my own will, this is my own doing. It's not at all. For those who know Paul's testimony, it wasn't his will to be a Christian. It was his will to kill Christians until God apprehended him, called him to himself, and commissioned him for the ministry. I love that. Early on as a Christian, I wanted to avoid pastors. I didn't want to become one. Oh, but the will of God. But the will of God. I stand before you this morning. See, Paul knows that he's not an apostle because of his own righteousness. Something good in him. It's not his own choosing, but because of God's unfathomable grace in his life. And Paul places no confidence either 
in his own ability, in his own track record, as if this apostleship was somehow bestowed upon him for his good works. No. We read it in Philippians 3. Once again, let me just read it to you. I think it's verse 6. He says, I put no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to say, his desire in verse 9, my desire is that I'd be found in him. That's Christ, in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. For he says earlier, that's rubbish. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is my confidence. Not in my flesh, not in my abilities, not in my choosing. But God, through Christ, has chosen me and his righteousness is now imputed to me. There lies his confidence. And there we see God's grace. He's an apostle for one reason only. Because of God's, through Christ's, redemption and righteousness. Jesus had called, had claimed, and commissioned him. It was the will of God. And it was all by his grace. And you see, it's this understanding that emboldens Paul. That gives him boldness and courage and power. It's not in his upbringing. It's not in his pedigree as a Jew. That's all rubbish, he says, compared to knowing Christ. That's not his confidence. Neither is his confidence in his circumstances. Things weren't going too well for Paul. He's in prison. Apostle, yeah, right. Where are you, buddy? He's in chains in Rome. He had plans to go to Spain. I don't know if he ever made it there, but he's in Rome. Under guard. Ever thought about Paul's life as an apostle? His confidence wasn't based on how he was treated, his circumstances. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Let me just read this excerpt from Paul. It's amazing. He says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. You've been fasting this week, you relate to that one, huh? Often without food, in cold and exposure. Yeah. Where's, where's the Apostle Paul's confidence, huh? Do you remember what happened to Paul the last time he was actually in Ephesus? To those he's writing to in this letter? Let me escort you there. It was probably about 10 years ago on his third missionary journey. You know what happened last time he was there? The apostle was there. A riot broke out. And they wanted to kill him if they could. You see, Ephesus, during Paul's day, was known as the home, the temple of the great goddess Artemis. But people were turning to Christ. They were forsaking the idols of Artemis. But you know what? the silversmiths, the idol makers, weren't too happy about it. So they banded together. They were threatened by the loss of business. And they're rushing through Ephesus into the theater and a riot is breaking out. They're shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they're ready to lynch him. I have an opportunity actually to go to this theater. It's in modern day Turkey. I think a few of you have been there as well. Let me tell you, this would be an intimidating place to enter into. Upon entering the theater, there's 10,000 or more people right there in your face. And they're calling out for your blood. You know what Paul said when he heard of the riot in the theater? It says this in verse 30 of Acts 19. He wished to go in among the crowd. Really? You wish to go in among the crowd? I tell you, I've been in a riot. You don't want to go there. You just not want to go there. I was, well, the opportunity, you could say, if it's an opportunity to actually be a part of what was called the poll tax riots in London back in 1990. I wasn't taking part in them, but I was caught up in the riot. When hundreds if not over a thousand, were rushing down the streets 
of London, turning over vehicles and torching them. There was a spirit of rage and demonic activity that I have seldom have ever encountered in my life. So I see these folks running. I do what I do best. I run. I run into Taco Bell. There was one Taco Bell in London. I knew what that Taco Bell was. I ran into Taco Bell. I got a seat in the far back and I ate my burrito. (laughs) Until a garbage can that has been lit on fire flies through the window of Taco Bell. Glass is scattered. People are running around. They are going crazy. So I run out of Taco Bell. I find shelter under a scaffolding, a building with scaffolding. Pretty soon, people are climbing up the scaffolding, trying to tear the scaffolding down. People are on this one-known street called Bond Street. They are vandalizing multi-million dollar businesses. I'm seeing them taking out fine clothing and jewelry. People are indiscriminately punching one another. And I was ready to strangle someone. I didn't know what was happening. I was, I forgot the story. I was mad. I got caught up in this rage. People weren't thinking. They're going crazy. That was my experience. But, see, Paul here, he's not fighting. He's not fleeing this mayhem. He wants to address them. What gave the Apostle Paul the confidence and the boldness to say, let me in. Let me into that theater. What gave him that confidence? It was this, that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. By the will of God. He knew his place in God's story of grace. And Paul did not fear even death itself. Church, what's your confidence? What what does your identity lie? Is in what you do? Is your confidence in what you do? If so, that's a lousy confidence. That's a lousy confidence. Because you're always going to fall short. Moms, dads, businessmen, athletes, scholars, social workers, pastors, you fill in the blank. Or perhaps your identity does not lie so much in what you do, maybe it lies more in what's happened to you in your life. Perhaps that's what you've let define you. Perhaps it was a childhood, childhood tragedy or abuse. Perhaps it's a broken home you've come from. Maybe even a wrecked marriage or a squandered youth. Or church is your confidence in who God has called you to be in Christ. Notice how Paul refers not only to himself in this greeting, but now how he addresses the church in Ephesus in the latter part of verse 1. He says these words, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We, the saints. Once again, we can just skim over this common designation, can't we? Paul uses these words, this designation, saints, in a variety of his letters, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Philippians, I believe. I want to step back for a second to know what we're saying and what Paul is saying when he's addressing the saints in Ephesus. You need to know a little bit about the city of Ephesus. It was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at its time. As mentioned, it was the capital, the home, of the temple of the great goddess Artemis. It was a home of a, to a variety of cults, including emperor worship, Roman emperor worship. It was a port city. As I'm told... When the sailors came up to the port city near that theater, there was a stone sign that directed the sailors directly to the brothels there in town. It was a sensual city. It was a materialistic city. It was an idolatrous city. Let's put it this way. To make the statement to the saints who are in Ephesus is like saying, opening a letter with these words, to all the saints in South Beach. That would leave most scratching their heads, wouldn't it? If you address a letter that way. Well, maybe Paul knew some saints there, Corey. You know, maybe he knew some folks there. He did live there and minister there. 
He spent three years there. But it had been five, six, seven years since his last visit. See, what's interesting about this letter is it has for Paul a rather impersonal tone. It's uncharacteristic of Paul. He doesn't mention any names in this letter of those he would have known so well. Of those he had affection for. The only name that Paul mentions in this letter is the name of Tychicus. That's a tough word. Tychicus. Okay. Let's call him Ty, shall we? I can really speak English. and that, That's difficult enough for me. We'll call him Ty. All he thinks of this one man called Ty, who wasn't from Ephesus, but he was sending to Ephesus. In fact, it's Ty that ties together, pardon the pun, some of the dates and the recipient of this letter, some of the data that we have. You've seen a number of reliable manuscripts. We don't read the words in Ephesus. It goes like this. To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that Ephesians were not the recipients of the letter, but perhaps this letter was a circular letter given to many churches in this region around Ephesus. Thus, the lack of personal greeting that we see. Perhaps it was Ty himself as the emissary who was taking this letter and the letter of Colossians on his, joy, on his voyage. Maybe he landed in Ephesus, dropped off the circular letter that we have here to the regions of the churches in Ephesus, and then moved on the Roman road eastward to Colossae, where he then gave them the letter of Colossians. These two books, or letters, Ephesians and Colossians, are very much alike in many ways. In fact, 34% of the wording in Colossians is also found in Ephesians. These two go together. Why do I mention all this? I mention because of this. Paul wasn't necessarily speaking to saints that he knew personally. He wasn't speaking of those he had necessarily had personal encounters with or knew from personal experience. He's speaking of those he may not have known by name. Those who were saints, not because Paul knew them, but because Christ knew them. There's a difference. That's where we're going. Because they were known by Christ. He's speaking to those who were believers in Christ and thus whose identity was found in Christ. He's speaking to those, it says in verse 1, they were faithful. To quote commentator P.T. O'Brien, this word translated faithful points not so much their being trustworthy or reliable, but as being believers. That's how this word is often used in Scripture. He's speaking to saints who are believers in Christ. Those who are known by Christ. I realize that not everyone here is in this category this morning. I'm speaking to the saints at Palm Vista. Not everyone here could be called that. Can I just say, if that's the case, it's not too late to find your place in that story of grace. But it doesn't come by merely being a better person, trying to become a saint somehow, or somehow trying to slip into the story as you might slip into church. No, it's only by repenting of your sinful rebellion against God and finding your place and identity in Christ. That's who a saint is, and that's who Paul is addressing. Those saints who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. This is perhaps the most important phrase in the entire book of Ephesians. This phrase, in Christ or in Him, is used 35 times in this book, the most of any New Testament book. Reading this in the phrase in context, excuse me, reading this phrase in context throughout the letter, it doesn't just mean belief in Christ. It means that. But it speaks of a union with Christ, of being found in Christ. In other words, this, this address in Christ is a geographical address, not just a spiritual one, for those who were in Christ. You see, God the Father sent His Son to unite all things in Christ. We who are in Christ, and then they died with Christ, 
but in raised to new life in Christ. So it's being communicated. We're in Christ. His life is now our life. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His death is now our death. Death to sin. His resurrection is now our resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. His exaltation is now and will be our exaltation. That's why Paul speaks in this letter about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He speaks about us being seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Why? Because we're united with Christ. We are in Christ. We go where Christ goes. His blessings are now our blessings in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can conclude his greeting with these words. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Do you see it? By grace, all we who believe have been made alive and united in Christ. We just haven't been united to Christ. We've been united with one another as well. There's no more Jew and Gentile ethnic status distinction. We are the church as one. We are one new humanity in Christ under His rule for the world to see. That's grace. There's also peace. There's a peace with God that we now have. It's a vertical peace with God. We also have a peace that we share now with one another that's horizontal that we can share. Grace and peace. It's the two major themes in the book of Ephesians. And what a summary of the gospel it provides. Well, friends, do you view yourself as a sinner or a saint in Christ Jesus? Do you know your place in the story of God's grace? Okay, confession time. I believe in our seriousness to root out sin in our lives. I'm afraid that we as a church, starting with us pastors, have sometimes either directly communicated or intimated that our primary identity is that of sinner, not of saint. Church, we want to correct that. Oh, we are sinners. But God sees us as saints who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul, thus God, wants us to know that as well in this letter. So to wrap it up, why does this matter? This big story, God's story, our place in this story. Why does this matter and how does this matter to us today? Church, we are called to obedience. We are called to fight sin. We must address sin. We'll see that in Ephesians. But we battle sin and we battle the enemy, not primarily as sinners, but as saints who are in Christ Jesus, as those who know their place in God's story of grace. This book of Ephesians, six chapters long. It can be divided into two major sections. The first section, chapters one through three, could be entitled, Our Wealth in Christ. First three chapters, it's who we are in Christ. The second section, chapters 4 through 6, could be called our walk in Christ. How we then live out this Christian life. So the first three chapters are our identity in Christ, who we are. The last three, how we are then to live based on who we are in Christ. You have that, you have the basic outline of Ephesians. You see, there are 35 imperatives or directives in this book. And they're all found in the last three chapters. All found in the last three chapters. Why is this so? Because Paul wants to understand that how we live or walk as Christians depends on who we are in Christ. In other words, we must understand how we are to live in Christ. If we're to do that, we must first learn who we are in Christ. Indicatives precedes imperatives. Who we are precedes then how we should live. But we often get that order wrong, don't we? 
This kind of cuts across the grain of our thinking, doesn't it? We can somehow think that how we walk, how we live, how we obey, determines who we are. No, in Scripture, how we walk is and should be a reflection of who we are. So often in our thinking, don't we? We can just beeline to sin or to the sin of others in the hopes of change or in the hopes of changing another person. I don't think this is a sin of one church. I think it's a struggle of all saved humanity. If you don't believe me, think about how you address repeated sin that you see in your spouse, in your believing child, in your good friend. Do you first remind them who they are in Christ as a saint? Probably not they sinned against you because you're seeing them as a sinner, not as a saint. How do you address sin in your own life? How do you view yourself? Where do you begin? When you've sinned, you've disobeyed. Man, wretched me. There I go again. Or is it this? Oh Lord, I've sinned. But Jesus, I'm yours. My life is found in Christ. Help me now to battle this sin as a victor, not as a victim. As primarily a saint, not just a sinner. Is that your prayer? If you're like me, it's probably not most of the time. I don't think we really get this. See, Paul spent 66 verses before he got to his first command. He spent three chapters addressing the Ephesians, telling them, this is who you are in Christ. This is who you are, church. I want you to know who you are. Before he even mentioned one area of sin, one area to change. I find that instructive. Oh, I find that needful, church. May we as well imitate that as well. So do you know how you can best serve your spouse, your friends? How you can best serve that home group member who's in Christ? That home group member who maybe is confessing sin, who maybe is struggling at the moment. We serve them by pointing them to Christ and who they are in Christ. We point them to their calling in Christ. We remind them of their identity in Christ. It's exactly what Paul is doing in the greeting. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. To who? The saints in Ephesus. We start with the indicative, who we are, and then we move to the imperatives, how we then should live. If you miss this point, you're going to miss the book of Ephesians. Church, it's our identity in Christ that makes possible our obedience to Christ. Say it again. It's our identity in Christ that makes possible our obedience to Christ. Well, in summary, our banner theme for Ephesians is is this. Called in Christ, that's chapters 1 through 3, conformed in community, that's chapters 4 through 6. Called in Christ, in Christ, conformed in community. What is this community that we speak about? It's a community called the church. May we be a church that knows our place in God's story of grace. And may we be a church that reminds one another of our identity and calling in Christ as we gather. Called in Christ, but we're conformed to community. What do we do in community as a church? First of all, we testify to the cosmos that Christ is Lord. And as we do that, we encourage, we remind one another, we remember together who we are in Christ. We encourage one another with fellowship. We speak the truth in love. And thus, we are conformed to Christ as we're reminded of who we are in Christ. Called in Christ, conformed in community. There we have the book of Ephesians. It's in Christ in the church where we live out our calling and identity. Oh, church, and it's right here at Palm Vista where we shout to the cosmos that Christ is Lord. Let's do it together for that sixth month as we go through the book of Ephesians. Let's pray.
Let me invite the worship team to come forth at this time. Dear Father, dear Lord, these are heavenly, weighty words that we are just hopefully beginning to comprehend. Lord, may we delve deeper into the mystery of your plan of calling your people to yourself to establish your rule in heaven and on earth. Oh, Father, in the days and in weeks ahead, show us what it means to be a saint in Christ. Show, show us what it means to be an encourager to one another, to our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. Lord, help us to see those right now in our lives. Perhaps those who are believers, but as Al mentioned earlier, have offended us, have even sinned against us. Oh, Father, give us your eyes that we may see them as saints in Christ. May we love them with the truth of your gospel, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's conclude. Let us sing, church. Church, just a little pastoral moment here. You might be saying as we sang those songs and as we went through the scripture this morning, well, Cor, that's how I address those who are in Christ. But how about those who I'm not sure, who may not be in Christ? Perhaps it's your own child or even your own spouse. Can I say this? The answer is simple. The answer is simple. If you're not in Christ, you can't obey. You can't obey fully from the heart. So why do you expect that person to obey? Why do we expect that child to be able to obey? Let the gospel, let their inability to obey, their struggle with sin, lead them to Christ. That one day they may be found in Christ that they too may sing this song. Well, church, go now in peace. Go now in Christ Jesus, your Lord, and proclaim to the cosmos that he is ruler of all. Amen? Amen. Amen.